0: Good morning. Good morning, if you have a Bible you can go ahead and get it, open to 1st Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we are in a teaching series uh, through 1st and 2nd Timothy that we're calling This Is Us, and it's this uh, concept of Paul writing to Timothy, explaining to him what it looks like to come under the lordship of Jesus together as a church family, here's what that looks like, um, and he describes that for us in these uh, two letters that he wrote to Timothy while he was ministering to the church in Ephesus. And so um, we are studying through them week by week, and we end 1 Timothy today. We start 2 Timothy next week, so 1 Timothy chapter 6. Hey, before we get started, I'm going to pray, and before I pray, I want to remind you that tonight is Harvest Fest. Um, We're having a giant celebration for our community, and we want to invite you and everyone that you know to come out, invite people to come from 5 o'clock to 7.30. We're going to have inflatables, petting zoo, pony rides, food trucks, so bring some money for the food trucks. Um, All kinds of fun and games. It's just going to be a blast and want to invite you to come and bring your family with you uh, tonight here at New Hope uh, for Harvest Fest. Now if you call this place your church home, uh, we have a house on the south side of our property called the Mountain House and there is a big piece of grass between that house and this building and we're asking anybody that calls this place their church home to park in the grass there to make room for people in the community to park in the parking lot. So keep that in mind. Housekeeping items out of the way, let's pray and jump into First Timothy 6. Father, we thank you this morning for your presence with us. We thank you for the time of communion together as a church and singing. And as we open your word, we believe that you will communicate with us. We believe you have something to say, God. And so we pray that you would speak to us very clearly. God, I pray over the vision of our church that we would truly be disciples who intend to make disciples. That all of life, God, would be spent living for you, that when we come into this place, we would be tired because we've been living on mission all week, sharing the gospel, spending time with people, encouraging them. We come in here and we're exhausted and we meet together as the church family. We gather so that we can be reminded and encouraged that we can gain some new energy to go back out and scatter and live intentionally for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this morning. And we look forward to what you have to say to us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to talk about this morning um, kind of fits with this story I heard this week of a grandfather sitting with his grandson on the front porch of their house. And the grandson is sitting there talking, getting wisdom from his grandfather, when all of a sudden, one of the dogs from underneath the deck takes off running, barking, and, and just beelining it for the woods. And there goes the dog. And grandson's like whoa what is that and the grandpa goes well just wait a second wait just a couple minutes and all of a sudden all nine of his other dogs take out from underneath the deck He had a lot of dogs they take off running for the woods too and they're barking and screaming and the grandpa says to the grandson hey if you wait about four or five minutes those other nine dogs are going to come out of the woods and they're going to have their tail between their legs and they're going to be whimpering sure enough about uh, seven to ten minutes later here come all those nine dogs and the tail between their legs and they're whimpering they come walking right back to the deck they lay down and go back to sleep the grandpa says, hey, wait a couple more minutes and you'll see that lead dog come back out. A couple more minutes, here comes the dog out of the woods with a rabbit in its mouth. The grandson says, How's, what, what just happened there? He said, you know why the lead dog stayed in the woods and got the rabbit? The grandson says, no, why is that? And grandpa goes, because he's the only one that actually saw the rabbit. Everyone else was faking it. They just heard a lot of commotion and ran toward it. And I hear something like that and I think, man, is that not a picture of uh, the Christian life sometimes? or just life in general, right? We get so caught up, we hear some commotion, we see somebody doing something and we just go after it. We let the culture and the world dictate so much of the way we live our lives and lead our lives. And people going after, chasing after money and retirement. So what do we do? We make all of our life about money and retirement, only to be left unsatisfied. We, we don't find true satisfaction in it. And people, all, all kinds of people going after notoriety and acceptance and job promotions. And when we don't get that job promotion, promotion we're left uh, without satisfaction at all. And we're, we're striving to be satisfied, to feel that satisfaction. But we're just making a lot of noise because we never actually saw the rabbit. We're not, we never actually saw the source of real satisfaction. And we do this in the church. I mean, we come to church and, friends, it's easy living in central Indiana in the Bible Belt sometimes to come and sit in a seat, and watch a stage, go through the motions, speak fluent Christianese, never watch rated R movies, only do Christian things, and, and feel good about ourselves as though we're really chasing after Jesus when in reality we never actually saw him. And so we go through the motions and we act like Christians and we talk like Christians and we behave like Christians only to come out of the woods with our tail between our legs. Because we never actually saw him. We never actually were pursuing him. We were pursuing this Christian lifestyle, not the Christ who we should have been chasing after. See, all through your Bible, the Bible speaks of a deep satisfaction that God can give you. I love Psalm 63 where the psalmist writes that my soul, my soul will find its satisfaction in you, God. God. My soul will find its satisfaction in you. That word satisfaction can literally be translated from Hebrew to be satisfaction, but it can also mean a deep, rich contentment. I will find my deepest sense of contentment from you, God. I'll be content. Meaning no matter what life brings my way, no matter what is thrown in front of me, no matter what's presented in front of me, no matter what opportunities I might have, I can be content in the midst of it. Whether I go through frustration, difficulty, even tragedy, I can be content. I can be satisfied in my relationship with Jesus. You see, that's what we were made for, but a lot of us never saw the rabbit, and we just went running toward the woods. And Paul's calling Timothy back to this. He says, hey, this is the kind of life that when you come together as a church, these these Christians should be living a life of contentment and satisfaction and peace. Because that's what they were made for. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He said it this way. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, if I I can't be satisfied by anything else I've been chasing in this world that the world has to offer me. The only explanation left is I was made for something different. And the Bible would say you were. You were intended to find your deepest sense of satisfaction and contentment in the person and work of Jesus and what he did for you that you were powerless to do for yourselves. Friends, I've learned this the hard way and this is what I think Paul's getting at in this chapter in First Timothy. So you cannot have the contentment, the satisfaction that the gospel promises and offers by faking your relationship with Jesus. You can't fake it. Because you just go through the motions, you just behave, you fake it, it leaves you dissatisfied. It leaves you with a sense of wanting more. This is what Paul's going to get at in First Timothy chapter 6 as he concludes his message to Timothy And we'll start 2 Timothy next week like we said before. But before we get there, last week we said that all of Scripture is God-breathed, meaning when we open this, we want to take in as much of it as we possibly can. And so when we study it and we preach it, we have to address all of it. We don't get to pick and choose where we want Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. And so you come to chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it gets interesting because you read the first two verses and they start talking about slavery and immediately, sitting in a room like this with a group of Americans, we immediately have a context for a word like that. We think through our history, and we define that word a certain way. And we miss what it's saying, and we think maybe this doesn't apply. But, so we're going to address the first two verses, then get into the thrust of what the chapter's about. And I think once you learn what this chapter's about, you'll be able to look back at verses 1 and 2 and say, No, that really fits. That really makes sense now. So Paul starts in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 this way. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good work or their good service are believers and they are beloved. And so he says two things. He says, One, if you're under the yoke of bondservant or you're under the yoke of slavery, First thing is you have to treat your masters as though you're not really serving them, but you're serving God. And so the way you behave and conduct yourself, even in that relationship, is extremely important. And all the more important when, you're, when the people that are over you are Christians themselves because they benefit from your hard work and service. And we read that and we think, whoa, 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 how's this even possible? I've heard people read verses like this and take on the argument that, hey, if the Bible endorses slavery, and we know that slavery is completely and totally wrong, then the Bible got that wrong and if the Bible got that wrong it probably got some other things wrong and therefore I don't have to obey the Bible and therefore I'm not going to submit to its authority I'm out and I get how that logic would work except there's a thing called context that changes it for you you see I think there's two things and we don't want to spend all morning on this but there are two things that if you'll keep in mind provide a context for verses 1 and 2 the first thing that people overlook when they are insistent that the Bible got this wrong is this. The first thing is this. There's a drastic, when I say drastic, I can't emphasize that enough. There's a drastic difference between 1st century Greco-Roman slavery and slavery as we see it in American history. Okay? Drastic difference, okay? As a matter of fact, in 1st uh, century, when you would hear bondservant or slavery, here's some of the things it could mean. Every seven years, anyone who was in one of these relationships, anyone who was a slave or a bondservant to a slave master, was given the opportunity every seven years to be completely set free. Okay, So this relationship, you had the opportunity to just walk away and it's fine. But many of them didn't because they entered into that relationship on their own decision based on their own choice. They entered into it because they'd have a debt and this person could erase that debt if you enter into this relationship. And so they would enter into that that bond servant and slave relationship so that they could pay off the debt and they could work as long as they want. In that In the first century world, you were allowed to be educated. You could pursue education. Many people were educated. Doctors, physicians, all kinds of things were in these relationships to pay off massive amounts of debt and to work for people. In addition to that, you could support your family and have your family. And many had really great relationships with their slave owners. And so you read that and you're thinking, whoa, 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 because we're reading through the lens of our own context. Back then, there's oftentimes people would write Greco Roman slavery, slavery in the first century world was actually somewhat beneficial and helpful. Now, let me be clear. The Bible in no way endorses even that relationship. The Bible doesn't say, like, yes, and do this. The the Bible's not pro slavery, but that relationship benefited people in that day. It did. Now, we also the second thing that you overlook is you place that in its context. You're like, okay, that's not the same, because it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with looking down on people, and we know that. We know that because of the second thing people seem to overlook, which is this. The Bible completely and totally condemns modern day slavery in all its ways, shapes, and forms and had a role in helping to abolish slavery. Many of the people that were uh, on the front lines of that social injustice who brought about change were believers in Christ. They would come to read the Bible and be convicted by the truth of the gospel and came to an understanding we can't treat people like this. The, the message of the Bible was equality. The message of the Bible is we're all created equal, and so we all have the image of God in us, and so we must treat people equally. And so that's what they came under the conviction of, and they led the way in leading to the abolishing of slavery. Many people, like John Newton, who was actually himself somebody who participated in the slave trade, came under conviction based on the message of the gospel. And wanted himself to be a part of it. Now, I think he wrestled with this for most of the rest of his life. He, he, he had a hard time with his past. But through conviction, helped lead the way in abolishing slavery. And sat down and wrote the words to a song that most of you have sang at least some point in your life. He sat down and penned the words to the famous song, Amazing Grace. Because he came to understand that the grace of God convicted and changed him. So he wanted it to convict and change others and lead to an end to this. You see... When you place it within its context, you come to understand this. Now, what Paul's getting at, when he writes this, the heartbeat of this chapter, and I would say the heartbeat of all of 1 Timothy, and maybe even the entire New Testament, comes down in verses 12 and 13. And so we're going to read those in a second. When you come to understand what 12 and 13 are saying, this is what Paul's trying to get at, and it brings context to verses 1 and 2, and the rest of the chapter as well. So bear with me, Come down to chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Here's what Paul says. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So he says two things. This good confession, you made it in front of many people and Jesus when he was before Pilate made this good confession. What's the good confession? What is is this? If you remember when Jesus was on trial and Pilate was near him, Pilate made an accusation toward him that Jesus affirmed was true. He said, They say that you're a king. Are you a king? He says, What you're saying is true. And so, the good confession, what is being confessed here, what Paul's talking about is this that all of life comes underneath the kingship and lordship of Jesus. Okay, bear with me here. All of life. That means everything. That means when we read the Bible, we take it as the truth from God about the life of Jesus. And we say, I will submit to this because you're the king. That means that if I don't like it, I still submit to it. If I'm not comfortable with it, I still submit to it. I'm trying to seek and understand it as much as possible. Wherever you call me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever you call me to do, I'm going to do. You're my king. I I don't develop a switch where I turn that on some days and off other days. And friends, if this is true, church must be, has to be more than a seat on a Sunday. It has to be. Because if Jesus is the King of your life, if that confession is true, if He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings over your entire life, that is not a once a week commitment. That's an everyday, all of life invitation for Jesus to be a part of rule and have authority over the everyday stuff of every part of your life. It is all or it's nothing. And he is reminding him, hey, Timothy, when you made that commitment, you committed that Jesus would be the Lord of all. And that means that when you're in this certain relationship, when people have a master over them, they need to remember that they're representing a much bigger master, that their small story is a part of a bigger story, that their real king is Jesus. And when they made that confession, it said that even when the circumstances aren't ideal, they're not great, they're not fun, he's still my king. And I still bow in submission to him. And he still rules over my life. Now, Paul begins to tell Timothy, hey, when this is the case, it looks a certain way. Certain things take place. Certain things don't take place. You have to do certain things. Now, here's what I want you to keep in mind. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Every command he's going to give in chapter 6, it's active, not passive. Doesn't just, you don't just stumble into it. He's saying you have to be intentional with this life of living in the kingdom of Jesus. You have to be intentional. You have to actually, like, consciously make a decision. You don't trip, fall, stumble, pick, like, pick yourself back up, dust off and say, wow, I'm godly. That's great. I just fell over and I got up and boom, it just happened to me. He's saying, no, when you want Jesus to be the king of your life, you intentionally make decisions and live a life that lines up with that confession or that truth. So verses 3 through 10, he says this, teach and, teach and urge these things. So there's, a, there's an importance behind this. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So he's being gentle. <laughs> he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and, or depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so he's addressing the false teachers that he's been addressing the entire time. He is saying, hey, Timothy, when you place yourself under the kingship of Jesus, then you do what he calls you to do. These false teachers, they come in and they recognize, okay, Paul and Timothy are teaching this. They're saying that to place yourself under the kingship of Jesus, it looks like this. And they start to do it and they're like, but it's not comfortable. We don't really like it. And there's much more to be gained if we would just cut some corners and change some things. And so they come in and say, well, let's change this. And and yeah, sure, that sounds good, but this part's not comfortable and I don't like that part Man, if I'm not comfortable, I'm just going to go somewhere else. And, and So let's just make it comfortable. and We'll all just kind of cut corners and make it as easy as we possibly can and make it as comfortable as we possibly can. And then following Jesus will be a breeze. And Paul's saying these people come in and they start making the, the faith and, and following Jesus and, and submitting to his kingship. They start making it like for profit and they start changing things the way they want to. It's not true to what they taught that it looked like when you submitted yourself to the kingship of Jesus. So he says, you've got to do away with that. You've got to be intentional. Friends, here's here's a bit of advice. If you want to guard yourself from falling prey to that, making your faith comfortable, you cannot only depend on me. You cannot come in on a Sunday morning and only depend on your preacher. You have to be in this word during the week. You have to be reading it. You have to be... To bring, you have to crave it and desire it and study it and listen to it and, and, and pray with it and, and talk to other people about it. You have to develop a love for scripture. If your heart's really going to be guarded, you cannot simply depend on a Sunday morning in a seat looking at a stage week after week after week. This is important. What we do is important because we open up God's word and together as a church we want to follow him. But individually you must be doing the same thing as well. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. He continues. He kind of shifts Gears a little bit. Verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment, that's great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we can be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So he says, we need to pursue the satisfaction that only comes from Jesus. He says not only will the enemy deceive you into making Christianity teach and, and and command you to do what's only comfortable for yourself. In addition to that, the enemy is going to use money and the pursuit of riches and comfort to deceive you as well. He's going to say you need to get more and gain more and you're going to develop a craving and a desire for more money and more stuff. And we all get kind of roped into this. This is all something that we all get pulled into uh, wanting and desiring at some point in our life. Every single one of us. And I think this is why Jesus consistently told his followers to watch out for the temptation that money will bring into your life if you're not careful. I mean, think about this. In Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bible, you can flip over. He talks about this. This anxiety that gets built up. Now, if I were to sit and talk to you, just me and you, I think that we could probably agree that at some point in our lives together we've felt anxious about money. Maybe live paycheck to paycheck for a season in your life. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe the debt has just felt like you're you're swimming in debt. You don't know how you're going to get out of it. Maybe you want to provide for and buy things. Maybe you desire to be comfortable. Maybe you look at your neighbors and they've got things that you don't have that you want and the anxiety begins to build up and you don't know about retirement. You're not sure about this or that and before you know it, all of your thought life and all of your heart is consumed with thoughts about money and desire for more money. And there's not a lot of room left in there for Jesus. And I think Jesus knew this. And he says these words in chapter 6, verse 25. He says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. About what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So then he goes on and he describes what it, why that is. Because God provides. He doesn't say because everything will work out. He says, no, because your deepest satisfaction can come from God because God always comes through. He's always faithful. Look at how He provides for all of creation. You're the pinnacle of His creation. Why would He not provide for you? He's always going to come through. He always has, He always does, and He always will be faithful in providing for you. He says, how do you keep your mind focused on that? You jump down to verse 33, and He says this. You seek first His kingdom, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, meaning you'll find great contentment and satisfaction. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the days its own trouble. And so Jesus taught this. Stop being so worried about everything that's going to happen to you. Stop being so anch- like riddled with anxiety that you can't function and focus on Him, because you're going to lose the satisfaction that only comes from Him. Paul would then write this to Timothy in Ephesus, but Paul wrote it all the time because he knew... Much like is true in your life and in mine, money creates a distraction from the mission of God. It just does if you're not careful and intentional and on purpose. And so he would write to the church at Philippi. If you were to flip over to Philippians chapter 4, I love how he words this to this church in Philippi. He says this in verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length, that you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Now here's where he gets to what it looks like to follow Jesus in the area of contentment. He says, Now, not that I'm speaking from being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the secret is this, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, when you understand it through the lens of satisfaction and contentment, it's not about you getting what you want or accomplishing what you want. That verse doesn't just fit beautifully on a coffee mug for you to memorize and be able to reach and achieve your goals. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength until you fail at reaching your goal and then Jesus is a liar. (laughs) It's not what it's about. What that verse is about is about you finding your deepest satisfaction and contentment in him. I like the way John Piper said it. And I didn't plan on this, so it's free. Thank you for coming. You get this for free. He said this. He said, God is most glorified in us. We do our best job following him, placing ourselves under the kingship of Jesus. He's most glorified in us. When we find our deepest satisfaction in him you bring God the most glory in your entire life when your deepest satisfaction is in him not what he's doing for It's just in him look at what he's done look at who he is my deepest satisfactions in him that's when he's most glorified in and through me now this comes in waves it's a lot easier said than done because we all trip and fall right about three and a half weeks ago Um, My wife and I, we started a month ago saving to buy a new van. Her van's getting up there miles. And we just thought, I just thought as soon as, like it's been a great van. But as soon as this van hits a certain point, it's going to be like boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden it becomes a money pit. And so I thought, let's start planning ahead. And so we're saving, but then, like we're nowhere near the goal yet. And then all of a sudden the door handle on the sliding door of the van breaks off, completely comes off. And I'm like, I've had enough high mileage we're pl- like oh this is so frustrating because this is the door that when she picks the kids up from school everybody can see and the kids have to like go in through the front door and push it open and of course we need to spend money on things to make sure that people only see good stuff that we have right and so it was embarrassing and and so I have this broken door and I'm like oh so I did what any reasonable person would do is I drove to another dealership and one dealership said hey to fix it we want four hundred dollars I said of course you do course you do. It's only a handle. Of course it would be $400. So then I drove uh, to a different dealership and I said, all right, what can you do for me? I want to trade the van in. And so I test drove this new van. Man, it was sweet. It was all the bells and whistles. I drove home. I'm like, ah, right? That temporary satisfaction that you get. I pull up into the driveway. I showed Sarah. I said, man, this is what we need. This is good. Let's just go ahead and do this and we'll figure it out. And, and my wife, who has more godly wisdom in her pinky finger than I have in my whole body... She said to me, hey, we've been working with a couple families to try to tell them to like, avoid debt and to pay things off and to live within your means. Don't you think we should practice what we preach? Oh. <laughs> Lord, really, through her again. <laughs> okay. And so after talking about it, I drove back that night after they were closed because I didn't want to deal with a salesman. And I dropped off the car and I put a little envelope that said, don't call me, and I put the key in the drop box and they called because, uh, of course, they called. But we got rid of the van because I learned this principle. That the deepest satisfaction shouldn't be in getting a new thing. Like, I didn't need that. I didn't need to place my identity in that. And, and it, my wife reminded me, like, no, like we can do this the way we're, we are committed to doing it. Like, we can accomplish this. You don't have to have that to feel better about yourself, to feel like you're a better provider or somehow we have better things. You don't have to keep up. And this is what Paul's saying. If you're not careful, money will deceive you. Wealth will deceive you. The pursuit of stuff will deceive you. He says, but here's the plan to avoid that. He says this, but as for you, verse 11, O man of God, flee these things. If you have a Bible, underline that or highlight it. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him the honor and eternal dominion Amen. So he says to him, you want to avoid uh, being deceived by money and being roped in by money, Timothy? There's certain ways that you need to do this, and you, first of all, you need to flee from those things. You need to run away from the things that entice you and pull you in, and instead pursue the life that God has for you, and he ties it all back to kingship. He says, you pursue your king. You pursue the one who did for you what you were powerless to do for yourselves. Pursue that life, and these things will take care of themselves, but you have to flee. You, you don't just passively accept that truth. He says you have to intentionally be active with that truth. You think about fleeing. What we were studying this together, some some of the ministers on staff here at the church, and one of them said, "Hey, there's always a cost that comes with fleeing. Like it's never like this simple, easy thing. It always costs you something." And immediately when they said that, I thought of the story of Joseph in your Old Testament. Joseph, this kid who God gave this great dream to, who continually was mistreated and abused, finally, because of integrity and character, rises up the ranks of leadership and begins to lead in Potiphar's home. Potiphar was an army general. Potiphar trusted him with everything until Potiphar's wife makes an inappropriate move on Joseph, and the Bible literally says that he fled from her. He literally ran away from her in a pursuit of integrity and character that would honor God. He ran from her, and she stole his coat. And used it against him. And, the, and guess what? The, the consequence, right? The reward that Joseph got for his integrity was to be thrown in prison. It always costs you something, right? But God would use that to train him, teach him, and prepare him to do incredible things for his kingdom later on. And I'm convinced he does the same thing in our lives. But we have to actively flee the things that are causing us to stumble. I, I've said this to you guys before. The way that I would encourage you to do this is, uh, stir and starve. We've said this before, but we'll say it again because it's always good to be reminded. Everybody say stir. Say starve. One more time. Stir. Starve. So you stir the things that create affection for Jesus in your life. Like you have to constantly, it's, you can't let leave it sitting there stale. It has to be stirred. Constantly stirring these things that create affection for Him in your life. For me, I like to read. I like to read scripture, I like to read a good book about scripture, I like to listen to podcasts, I love spending time with people. I love talking about God and what he's doing in the world with other people. For me, I have to constantly have those things in my schedule because they stir my affection for Jesus. For you, it could be a variety of different things. You could be someone who loves music, so you want to listen to worship music, or go out in creation and take it all in and stir the affection that you have. Jesus on the flip side you have to starve the things out of your life that rob you of that affection you have to starve them out of your life for for you could be a variety of things for me let me give you one example just earlier this week okay last week my phone fell and shattered so I had to go get a new phone I get a new phone and immediately I installed social media on it and I'm sitting in my house and we had some people in, in our house and we're hanging out And my wife says something to me, and I didn't even hear her because I was looking at this portal of evil called a phone, right? Completely captivating my mind and my attention. The thing that I wasn't doing, I wasn't present in the room at all. I missed everything that she said, and she got up and walked out. And then later on, we had this conversation, like, like, you're not present. Like, put it down. It's robbing you of the affection. You told me that that, that being with people creates affection for Jesus, and yet when you're around people that could create that affection for Jesus, you're staring at a phone. Put it away. So I had to delete all the social media off my phone again and put it away. And thought, man, it's so easy to get roped into the things that rob you of your affection for Jesus, and you have to be intentional, active, not passive, in pursuing those things. He closes out this way. Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And you might be reading that and you might say, well, Rob, I'm not rich. So that can't apply to me. So that's cool. I can keep focusing on all the things that I'm focused on. I'm not wealthy. I'm not rich. I don't have money. I read a Gallup poll this last week and it had some really interesting facts. I want to put some things into perspective for you when he says rich and he talks about wealth and he talks about guarding your heart from it because some of us, we check ourselves out. I'm not rich. Very, very average. I'm not rich. Here's, here's what I learned. They polled a bunch of Americans, and it said this. They came to this understanding. They asked Americans whose household income was $30,000 or less what income they would need to have in order to feel rich. Most of them said $75,000. So people who made thirty dollars said they had to make $75,000 in order to feel rich. Then they asked a bunch of Americans who made $50,000 or less what income they would have to have in order for them to feel like they were rich or wealthy. And they said, I need $100,000. So if I made $100,000, I would feel rich, I'd feel wealthy, and I could be generous and do more things. The most commonly given answer from Americans in this poll as to what income qualified you as rich was $120,000. Except, of course, for those who made $120,000. And for them, it was, I have to make $200,000. If I made $200,000, I'd feel wealthy and secure, and I could be generous. A little bit of perspective. If you earn $37,000 a year collectively, household income, you are in the top 4% of wage earners in the entire world, on our planet. Which means 96% of the world is poorer than you are. If your household income is $37,000, okay, or more. If you have $45,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of people in the world. Now, this article also talked about a story where Bill Gates went to India. He went to a village in India, and after he left this village, somebody came in and asked the lady who he was visiting with, they said, hey, did you know that the man that just visited you is the richest man in the entire world? Her response immediately was, everyone who visits from the West is rich. Everyone. Which means if you were the next person to walk into that village after Bill Gates, she'd put you in the same category of wealth as Bill Gates. So feel good, right? Here, Paul's goal is not that you would feel depressed, but that you would feel warned. And that you would be careful and pay attention to the deceptive power of the enemy and to deceiving you into thinking that your reality is anything except what it actually is. You see, if you're not careful, money would make you one of those nine dogs that came out of the woods with the tail between their legs, saying, I thought I was chasing something. I thought I was doing the right thing, only to not be caught. Now hear, hear me when I say this. The Bible never says that money is evil. It never says that wealth is wrong. It never says that being rich is wrong. In fact, Paul's goal here in 1 Timothy 6 is to say not that the rich people should just get rid of all their money and be poor. What he's saying is rich people should be extra careful because the more money you have, the more potential you have to be deceived. The larger your wealth is, the more potential you have to let your identity be caught up in that. And he says anything your identity is caught up in defines you. And if your identity is caught up in what you own or how much you have, you are on a pathway to destruction. So he closes out this way. He says, Instead of being caught up in their money, verse 18, they're to do good. Be good and be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard. That word guard is very active, not passive. Be intentional. Protect it. Pay attention. Guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by, pressing, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you, Timothy. Protect this. Guard this. Fall underneath this. Let this be the authority in your life. Jesus be the king of your life, or you will be deceived. I love the way D.L. Moody illustrates this. He says that when you want to pursue generosity in a world, it, the church is much like a ship. So picture a giant ship. And he says the ship was never intended to be on land. It was never built for the land. The ship is intended to be in the sea, the water. That's where it's supposed to be. But the sea is the culture. The sea is the world. See, it's not bad for the ship to be in the world, but Lord, help us when the sea gets into the ship. Because it will destroy everything. It will sink the ship. You see, you're to be in the world, but not defined by the world. You're to stand out as distinct in the world. Not be defined by what the world says you are to be defined by. You have to stand out. You have to be different. He says one way to do that is to constantly pursue Jesus as your king and to be generous. And so together as a church, we decided we wanted to be generous. And we collectively, for the last three weeks, have partnered with IDES and we collected money the last three weeks to go towards hurricane relief. And I'm going to show you a video here in a minute that illustrates perfectly what this chapter is teaching. It also tells you a little bit about where your money went. And so it's going to tell you a little bit how did we participate in hurricane relief. I want you to check out Deborah's story.
1: Well, the day the rain started, it was I don't know, I've forgotten the days. But I was on the phone sharing God and the love of God with about 15 or 20 other ladies and just kind of ministering to them and telling them that God had this in control and that we would be protected and that we had angels all around us. And and I told him to read Psalm 91 because that's the prayer protection and I told him also to read Isaiah 43 and 1 when the water comes in and that God has called us by name and we were his and when the rivers came in it wouldn't overflow us and about 30 or 40 minutes after we talked I'm sharing with these women all of a sudden this rain or this water I began to see it come in my house just coming in under the doorways and seeping through the walls and uh, But I didn't fret, it it alarmed me. But I didn't fret because I knew that God was still in control and that he wasn't gonna allow anything to happen to me that he didn't know about. Couldn't happen, it wouldn't happen. Because he told me 18 years ago when my husband passed away that he would never leave me. and That he would never forsake me. And I knew that. Even though I was watching the water come into my house, that God was, was near and that it wouldn't overflow me. Yeah. And then after this was all over, I couldn't leave because the water was above the mailbox outside, and we couldn't leave. The street couldn't leave, so we stayed there all night, me and my grandson and six other people it was a family that's two doors down from me, and the water was up near the electrical plugs in their house. So they called and said they don't know anybody in the neighborhood, fairly new. And they called me and said, Nana, water is all in our house. It wasn't in my house that much then. And they said, can we come over? I said, come right now, come over. And we all spent the night here sludging around in the water. did couldn't turn the electricity off. So I told God, I said, we need angels, God. I said, we need angels treading this water with us tonight and um, they said if I hadn't been here because my daughter was trying to get me to leave and they said if I hadn't been here they were just going to go and sit on the top of the roof and and wait until the next day and I said that's why God kept me here but this is this is so amazing I didn't want to leave my house when my daughter came over and they said lights went out on each side all these houses different houses had no lights until the next day. But not me. I had lights all night. <laughs> but God was faithful. And then a friend called, and he said, How are you? Are you dry? A mentor of one of my grandboys. And he said, How are you? Are you dry now? I said, Nope, not really. He said, You're kidding. So I said, Yes. I said, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do now. He said, Let me make a call. And he called. And that's when I met these wonderful people from Corinth current I mean current church that just came over and loved on me and blessed me and and then I was talking about I needed a shed because I have so much stuff in my house and one of the ladies said Chantel said you need a shed and I said yes she said I think I know just who can help you and she made a call to the church and uh, all these wonderful people came in and just blessed me and you can see my shed that's, that's yeah built my shed so now I have some place to put my stuff that I had wanted so it's just to the glory of God that people from all over just came in and allowed me to see God's face you know you, we, we wonder what God looks like but when total strangers come and help you And they don't look at who you are or where you come from, but they just reach out and let you see God's hands and God's feet and hear his voice and see his face. It's just real, really. It's good. But I just, I love my shit. I had guys that came down, Fred and, 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 and Terry and, and David. I'm just trying to remember all these names. <laughs> and, and today Rick is here and all these people that build me my shed. Yeah. And I just want to thank all those wonderful people that I'll probably never meet on this side. But I think when we all get to heaven... They'll say, we are the ones that help you with that shed. God'll say, these are the people that loved on you. Awesome it, it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be wonderful. But they built this shed for me. And they came from Dallas and they said they were out of Fort Worth. And then Rick told me today that there were people possibly in Florida who has been hit the same way that we have down here. And they built for me. Never meet them, probably never meet them, but I want to say to them today, thank you very much. Bless me. You've helped me. And I know God is pleased.
0: So, by God's grace and your generosity, because you're content, which enables you to be generous, we raised $7,500. And we're going to build seven of those sheds for different families that need them. I love the way she said it. She said when when we're content, right, she said we can be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus into the lives of other people because everything else is okay because of who he is and what he's done, so it enables us to have the capacity to be his hands and his feet and his voice everywhere, together as a church, individually, but let me encourage you and warn you this way, that incredible feeling that you have from things like Deborah's story and and other stories that you've been a part of, it will fade away. It will fade away if it is not grounded in a bigger, better story. The story of Jesus working to transform lives all around the world. I'm going to leave you with this. Contentment is temporary. Satisfaction is temporary, unless it's a byproduct of the work of the gospel in your life. It's just fleeing. It's temporary. It's not going to be there, unless it's grounded in the truth of Jesus in your life so let me charge you, as we finish 1 Timothy, before we get to 2 Timothy, I charge you to not fake it. Don't fake it. See the rabbit. Know what you're chasing. Know what you're chasing so that you find true satisfaction. And God receives all the glory.